This evening we are going to continue following the Apostle Paul on his second missionary journey almost all the way to the end in Acts chapter 18. So turn with me to Acts 18 and in a few moments uh, we'll begin at verse 1. Paul on this second journey has traveled extensively across the northeastern Mediterranean basin, most recently spending time in the great city of Athens in the south of Greece, proclaiming Jesus in the synagogue there and in the Athenian marketplace and even to the philosophers at the Areopagus. And tonight we're going to follow him just a little bit to the west now into the city of Corinth where he will minister powerfully and for an extended period of time before he sets back out for his home base back at Antioch of Syria in the east and making a few stops along the way. But primarily tonight will be in Corinth with Paul. So read with me now here in chapter 18 and beginning at verse 1. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you. You in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names and your own law, look after it yourselves. I am unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. And they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria, and with him were Priscilla and Aquila. In Sancria he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. They came to Ephesus, and he left them there. Father, um, as we 
go to Corinth with Paul tonight. I pray that you would come with us by your Holy Spirit and be our teacher. We ask this very simply, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. What I'd like to do uh, this evening as I open up this passage to you is simply to examine the various faces in the Corinthian crowd, if you will. Just to think about who are the various characters who play prominent roles in the unfolding drama of the gospel's advance in this city of Corinth and then eventually beyond. And what are these various people have to teach us today. So we're just going to look into some different faces and some different lessons that we can learn from them. And the first is, or the first two really, are there in verses 1 through 3, namely Aquila and Priscilla. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. So the first two faces are Aquila and his wife Priscilla. And when we look into their faces, we have a lesson in the wisdom of God's providence. When we look at their lives, we have a lesson in the wisdom of God's providence. Because isn't it interesting how Aquila and Priscilla, having been expelled from Rome, just happened to arrive in Corinth right around the same time as the apostle. And how they just happen to be of the same trade as the apostles, so that a business partnership is formed. And God's missionary, who is brand new to the city and who has come here unusually on his own, now has a place to stay and a means of supporting himself. Isn't the timing of those things interesting? Is it mere coincidence that Paul finds this Jewish couple at the perfect time, who are perfectly suited to be a blessing to him? Or is it that God's hand is in these things, sovereignly timing Paul's arrival at Corinth and the emperor's expulsion of the Jews from Rome, there in verse 2, so that these two tent makers will be in exactly the right place at exactly the right time to help his missionary? I think it's the latter. I think you'll agree. God is working sovereignly here. And if God can perfectly sync up the lives and careers and decisions and circumstances of Paul and Priscilla and Aquila and even the decisions of the Emperor Claudius in Rome, if God can sync all of that up, then surely we can trust that he will do the same in our lives too, right? Sometimes we may be like Priscilla and Aquila, and things may not go the way that we had planned. Sometimes we may not understand what God is doing with our lives. You may say to yourself, why am I in this job? Why am I in this city at this time with these people? We can't always make sense of where God has placed us. Sometimes, in fact, we may not particularly like where God has placed us. 
I doubt that Priscilla and Aquila particularly liked being booted out of Rome because of their Jewishness. But God evidently was in that. God had a plan for that. God was causing all things to work together for good. And if you are his child, the promise is that he will do the same for you, isn't it? Like Priscilla and like Aquila, Paul or God has a reason for the difficult things that happen in your life. God has a reason for placing you in that certain career. God has a reason for bringing you to this city at this time. And happy is the person who can accept those things, even if he doesn't understand them. And just notice that not only does God move Priscilla and Aquila around in order to make them a blessing to the apostle, but also, it would seem, in order to make the apostle a blessing to them. Because we're given no indication in these first three verses of chapter 18 that this husband and wife team of tent makers are actually believers in the Lord Jesus. We're not told that, are we? Luke, our narrator, simply describes Aquila as a Jew. Doesn't seem like they are believers yet, but at the end of Paul's 18 months in Corinth, Priscilla and Aquila are setting sail with the apostle in verse 18 as he completes his missionary journey. And in verse 19, he leaves them behind in the city of Ephesus, probably to begin establishing a gospel witness there. And so it seems likely to me that Priscilla and Aquila have probably been converted, have probably been brought to Christ sometime during these 18 months where they worked side by side with Paul and sat under his ministry at the synagogue. So God takes them from Rome to Corinth, and God brings Paul across their path as a temporary co-worker, not only to provide housing and finance for Paul, but to bring Christ to Priscilla and Aquila. And sometimes we see that in our city and in our lives too, don't we? God brings people to our city and places them in the workplace right next to people like us so that they will hear about Jesus. Look for those sort of providences in your life and like Paul, take advantage of them. So those are are the first two faces in the Corinthian crowd that should be noticed tonight. Priscilla and Aquila. And they teach us about the wisdom of God's providence. But then in verses 4 and 5, let's also notice Silas and Timothy. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Silas and Timothy. Now, these two faces in the crowd may be a little more recognizable to us because they've been traveling with Paul throughout much of this second journey. And when we look at their faces tonight, when we encounter them tonight, and when we encounter them elsewhere in the book of Acts, we ought to see the value of gospel partnership. The value of gospel partnership. That's what these two men teach us. The Apostle Paul, great as he was, did not usually work and travel alone. And there were surely numerous good reasons for that. But one of the reasons that we see here comes to us in verse 5. Really, verses 4 and 5, those verses we read. Before Silas and Timothy made it to Corinth, 
Paul's routine in that city seems to have been to work during the week and then to preach on the Sabbath. And one imagines that the reason for his doing that was probably financial. He may have had to work during the week in order to support himself, and therefore he could only preach on the Sabbath. But, verse 5, when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word. When they arrived, when his teammates got to the city, he was evidently able now to study and pray and teach full-time all week long. And the difference, quite simply, was the arrival of his partners. Now, I'm not sure exactly how Silas and Timothy's arrival freed up Paul to devote himself completely to the word. Luke doesn't say for sure. It's possible that one or both of them took jobs so that they could support the team financially, so that Paul didn't have to anymore. Or it's also possible that these two men had the team's money purse with them, so that when they arrived, they were able to bring some of the money that was donated to their cause, for instance, by the church at Philippi, which had been recently planted, and which we read in the the epistle to the Philippians, was generous with the apostle from the very beginning of that church's inception. But whatever the case, verses 4 and 5 make it plain that Paul was able to get much more done when he was with his teammates than he was alone. And that's how it almost always works in gospel ministry. The work of winning souls flourishes best when it's not just a lone ranger, but is undertaken by a team. That's why it's usually advisable to send missionaries out as teams and why it is wise for churches like the Philippians to faithfully support those missionaries so they can do more together with us than they could do if they were having to go out and and make tents and make a living on their own and do missionary work on the side. Do you see? Teamwork on the mission field is important, even when we're back here like the Philippians. This need for partnership is also why Paul would later write to the church in this very city of Corinth that the local church itself is like the human body, which functions best when all of the parts are working properly. That's why it's so important that churches have faithful elders and deacons and why we spend every time, uh, time every fall asking each of you to volunteer for servant ministry roles. Because we get more done when we partner than when we're just going at it alone. Incidentally, you'll be getting a survey in the mail, Lord willing, next week. And we need your help. We need you to think and pray about how you can be a gospel partner here. When Silas and Timothy arrived, whatever their roles were, they were able to take up their roles and perhaps add the contribution of the Philippian church as well so that Paul could flourish all the more effectively in his role as a primary preacher and teacher. And the gospel could go out that much more rapidly in Corinth because of the value of these gospel partnerships between men and even between these men and a church that supported them. And I just urge you, whatever your role in the flourishing of this local church or in the sending of the gospel to the nations, I urge you to do your part. I urge you to be, as Paul puts it in Romans 16, fellow workers in Christ Jesus. 
Let it be said of you, as Paul would later write to that church in Philippi, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. So when we look at Silas and Timothy tonight, and when we see perhaps the church of Philippi in back of them as well, we see the value of gospel partnerships. But then there's another individual, another face in the crowd that we need to notice tonight, and it's this man in verse 7 named Titius Justice. Let me begin reading back again in verse 5. When Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. Titius Justice, what do we learn from him? I think quite simply we learn courage. Titius Justice is, we are told in verse 7, a worshiper of God, which means that though he is a Gentile, he has come to believe in the one true God, the God of Israel, and he's begun worshiping him with his Jewish neighbors, probably at the synagogue right next door to his house. So this synagogue, where Paul has been preaching, is his spiritual home. And the Jewish people with whom he worships there are probably, many of them, his friends. Now, this itinerant preacher has arrived in verse 5, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. And Titius Justice's friends in the synagogue, many of them reject that message, and vehemently so in verse 6. They resisted and blasphemed. And yet it would seem that Titius Justice was not among them. He either believed what Paul was saying already, or at least he was intrigued enough not to join with the critics, but actually to invite Paul to use his home next to the synagogue, verse 7, as a preaching station. And given the strong reaction of the Jews to the gospel message, and given that these Jews are his friends and his fellow worshipers, and given that Titius Justice lives right next door to the place where they worship, I say it must have taken great courage for him to have stuck it out with Paul and even invited him to his home and showed him such hospitality. Now, his hospitality is a lesson in itself, isn't it? That is encouraged throughout the New Testament And Titius Justice shows it again here, using his home for the gospel. But the nature of this particular hospitality required great courage of this man, Titius Justice. Courage to go against the flow. Courage to go against the pressure of his peers. Courage to stand for the gospel and for the name of Christ. And with these gospel men, even when others who were his friends opposed them. 
courage to nail his colors to the mast and by opening his home for Christian meetings to declare himself on the side of Christ very clearly. And I just wonder if there's anyone here tonight who needs to benefit from this example and show this kind of courage. First of all, I just wonder if there's anyone here tonight who is as yet a secret believer in Jesus. Someone who really does love and trust Jesus, but for some reason you have not come forward to announce your allegiance to him before the world. And I just wonder if you'd be like this man, Titius Justice, and take your stand for Christ and admit to all and sundry that you intend to take his yoke upon you and learn of him. And then I wonder, too, if there are others of us who have professed our faith in Christ and we have been baptized and we have joined with his church, but who, when we are faced with neighbors, whether in the neighborhood or in the next cubicle, when we are faced with neighbors like those of Titius Justice, I wonder if there are some of us who are tempted just to keep our faith to ourselves and avoid causing uncomfortability or offense. Probably all of us are tempted that way sometimes, aren't we? But when we are, let's remember this man, Titius Justice, who is willing to declare himself on the side of Jesus, even if it was awkward in the neighborhood. Courage. That's what's called for in our service to Jesus. And then in verse 8, let's look at a few more folks who took a stand for Christ. Namely, Crispus and his household. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. This man must have had great courage as well, right? He's not just a worshiper of God, a Gentile who comes to the synagogue who's proclaiming that he's following Jesus now. He's actually the leader of the synagogue saying, I'm going to cast my lot in with Christ. He must have great courage as well, right? But just to learn another lesson from him and his household, just read verse 8 again and listen to it carefully. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And my question tonight is, many of the Corinthians, when they heard what, were believing and being baptized. What did the Corinthians hear that caused them to believe and be baptized? Now, surely, obviously, they heard the gospel, right? That's what Paul says in Romans 10. How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How could they believe in Jesus except that they had heard the news of him from Paul, right? So surely it's true that many of the Corinthians, when they heard the gospel of Jesus, were believing and being baptized. But the question is, is that really what Luke is getting at in verse 8? That's true, but is that what Luke is saying here? Is Luke simply saying that when they heard about Jesus, many of the Corinthians believed? Perhaps. Or is it? that he is referring to what happened when they heard the events in the beginning of the verse. Is he saying that they believed and were baptized when they heard about how the synagogue ruler himself 
had believed, along with his whole family. I think it might be the latter, given the context here. I think Luke might be saying that the synagogue leader and his family believed on Christ and that hearing about that, many others were persuaded to believe as well. You can imagine how that might have worked, I think. The folks in Corinth, perhaps, perhaps especially the Jewish and God-fearing folks, were hearing Paul's message about Jesus, and it was intriguing to them, and the Holy Spirit was beginning to draw them with his loving kindness. But perhaps many of them were still unsure as to whether they could actually cross the line and believe that the Messiah had really come and that Jesus was him. But then Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and the floodgates were opened. And many people, hearing that he has believed, are strengthened to come to Christ themselves. And so Crispus and his household teach us tonight the power of a gospel testimony. Power of a gospel testimony. Crispus teaches us of how one person coming to faith or walking with the Lord in faith can be like God's heavy rain that causes a gospel landslide in a community. Yes, as we've said recently, it is the gospel ultimately, the word of God ultimately, that brings about new birth and therefore repentance and faith. But a testimony can be a powerful torchlight in the Spirit's hand to shed light on the gospel or held up to draw people to the gospel. So yes, every one of us in this room tonight, if we are saved, we're saved because somehow the word of Christ came to us. The word is is the key. But in many of our lives, God also used the testimony of some godly person or some new convert in our sphere of friends or family to get us to the word of Christ or to give us courage to step over the line and believe. And that seems to have been the case with Crispus, especially when he first believed. Now, none of us can go back and be converted all over again so as to be a testimony to those around us like Crispus was, right? But we can share the testimony of how we were saved, can we not? And we can continue to walk in faith and obedience and love and just difference, uh, like Jesus kind of difference, so that we are a living testimony that's always present before the eyes of our neighbors and co-workers and friends. And some of them, having heard about our Jesus from this book, and then seeing our testimony of faith in him and the way we walk with him and the way we're becoming like him, Some of them will join the Corinthians in verse 8, believing and being baptized. So then, Priscilla and Aquila show us the wisdom of God's providence. Silas and Timothy show us the value of gospel partnership. Titius Justice is a model of courage. And Crispus and his household are a reminder of the power of a gospel testimony. But then let's also take a brief look at the unbelieving Jews in this passage as well. We encountered them already in verse 6. So opposed to the gospel were they that they blasphemed God. And Paul took leave of them and went next door. And then the way that God comes 
to Paul in a dream in verses 9 and 10. The way the Lord Jesus urges him not to be afraid there may be an indication that Paul was indeed afraid, or at least that he might have had good reason perhaps to be so, because the opposition he was facing was right next door and was significant. And then finally, in verse 12, the opposition from these unbelieving Jews comes to a head when, quote, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat. And one possible reading of verse 17 is that when they didn't get the ruling that they wanted, or any ruling at all for that matter, that they proceeded to beat up the man who had evidently taken Crispus's place as leader of the synagogue, Sosthenes. Incidentally, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1, names a Sosthenes as the co-author of that epistle, who seems to have been, at a later date, one of Paul's ministry associates. And it may be the same Sosthenes that we read about in verse 17. It may be that by the time we reach 17, this Sosthenes, like Crispus before him, has already become a Christian while still in his position in the synagogue. And maybe that's why they beat him up, because he had joined with Paul. But at any rate, these unbelieving Jews were so upset with the gospel message that they blasphemed, they took Paul to court, and perhaps they even beat up one of their own, all because they were so resistant to what Paul was preaching, so opposed to the message of Jesus. And the lesson of these unbelieving Jews in Corinth is really simple. It is the reality of resistance. These people remind us that when there is gospel, there will be resistance. And I just point this out to you in yet another step uh, on Paul's missionary journey to say once again that we should not be surprised. It keeps happening. We should not be surprised that Paul was opposed. We should not be surprised when we hear about church burnings in Nigeria or in Asia. We shouldn't be surprised if our families mock us or malign us for our faith in Christ. We shouldn't be surprised if world governments make it harder and harder to preach the gospel or to live out Christian principles. We shouldn't be surprised if sometimes our neighbors just frankly don't really want to hear about our Jesus. Now in our country, at least for the moment, resistance to the gospel usually takes a more polite tone than it did in Corinth, and we're thankful for that. But we shouldn't be surprised if many people just politely don't really want to hear. After all, as Paul would later write to his converts in this city of Corinth, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And if it's foolishness, many people will oppose it, they'll mock it, they'll resist it, they'll ignore it, They'll just turn a deaf ear to it. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, 1 Corinthians 1.18. But, Paul goes on to say, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Praise God we see that too, both in Corinth and in our own day. Where there is gospel, there will be resistance. And while we're talking about the Jewish resistance to the gospel in Acts 18, Let's also take a few minutes now to consider the judge before whom they brought the apostle. Let's just think 
for a little while about this man called Gallio in verses 12 through 17. But while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names and your own law, look after it yourselves. I'm unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat, and they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. Gallio. A few weeks ago, Toby and I listened to uh, a really excellent sermon focused on this man, Gallio, by a preacher called Kenneth Stewart in Glasgow. And so for the second straight time, I'm going to, um, to go through and give you partially someone else's sermon because these last two chapters are two chapters where I've heard two of the best sermons in my recent memory. So I'm going to borrow a bit from what Kenneth Stewart said about Gallio. I'm going to quote from him uh, over the next few minutes as well. But I want to say to you, too, that that message, his message is so good that I just encourage you to go and listen to it for yourself. Just go to sermonaudio.com, type in Gallio in the search bar at the very top of the page, and you will find it very easily. And what Stewart points out about Gallio and what we need to learn from him tonight is his indifference. His indifference to the great truths of the gospel. At first, Stuart says, Gallio's refusal to judge this case sounds reasonable, actually. Because, after all, there's been no real crime committed, verse 14, but rather the Jews are trying to engage Gallio in a religious dispute, verse 15, that really has no legal consequence to the empire. And so he runs them out of the courtroom, and understandably so from a merely legal point of view. This isn't his jurisdiction. Now, of course, his lack of concern about the beating in verse 17 should have been his jurisdiction and is appalling. But his ruling concerning Paul and the Jews seems a reasonable one. This is not a matter for the court system. If it were a matter of wrong or a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names and your own law, look after it yourselves. I am unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And in reality, that was a wise judicial ruling. And so Gallio seems to be justified in having blown off this case and having blown off these words and names and Jewish law. But note well, Stuart says, that the words and names with which Gallio is unwilling to deal are three of the greatest words and names you could possibly conceive of. Namely, God and Christ and Jesus. That's what this dispute is about, and that's what he doesn't want to hear. Isn't that so? The accusation against Paul there in verse 13, this man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. So this is a dispute about God and his law. And how was Paul supposedly doing that? Well, verse 5, 
Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. This is a dispute about God and about the Christ, the Messiah, and Jesus. These are the great realities which Gallio writes off as mere words and names that he doesn't want to hear. And when we look at it like that, Gallio's indifference is striking. And it doesn't seem any longer nearly as justifiable as it might have originally sounded. Paul is here in Gallio City claiming that the Messiah from God has come into the world. And he is preaching on matters of life and death and eternity. And Gallio has him in his courtroom and has a chance in verse 14 to give him the floor and hear what he has to say about the most important things that it could be imaginable for him to hear. And all Gallio can say about it is, ah, mere words and names. Get out of my courtroom. Now it's true, Gallio has no legal reason to hear or adjudicate this case, but considering the nature of Paul's preaching, Surely Gallio should have had a keen personal interest in hearing what Paul had to say. Perhaps he could have let Paul speak instead of preempting him in verse 14, simply because he realized, I need to hear what this man has to say about God and Christ and Jesus. That's Stuart's argument. And along the same lines, let me read to you Matthew Henry's apt summary of Gallio's conduct here. He says, here was something right in Gallio's conduct and praiseworthy that he would not pretend to judge of things he did not understand, that he left the Jews to themselves in matters relating to their own religion, but yet would not let them, under pretense of that, run down Paul and abuse him. Or at least he would not himself be the tool of their malice to give judgment against him. He looked upon the matter to be not within his jurisdiction and therefore would not meddle in it. But It was certainly wrong to speak so lightly of a law and religion which he might have known to be of God and with which he ought to have acquainted himself. In what way God is to be worshipped, whether Jesus be the Messiah, whether the gospel be a divine revelation, were not questions of words and names as he scornfully and profanely called them. They are questions of vast importance and in which, if he had understood them himself aright, he would have seen himself nearly concerned. He speaks as if he boasted of his ignorance of the scriptures and took pride in it as if it were below him to take notice of the law of God or make any inquiries concerning it. So yes, from a legal standpoint, Gallio was right to throw out this case. And Simon Kistemacher in his New Testament commentary on Acts points out that by Gallio's having done so, the gospel continued to spread in Corinth without any government interference. And that Just as the Lord had said in verses 9 and 10, no man was allowed to attack or harm the apostle. So praise God for that. Praise God that in his role as judge, he acted wisely. But from a personal, spiritual standpoint, Gallio was nonchalant with the things of most importance. And that is striking and sad and, says Kenneth Stewart, it is cautionary. And this is the great burden of that sermon that I hope you'll go and listen to in full. Beware of being like Gallio. Beware of indifference towards spiritual matters, especially when it comes to the great matters of Christ and salvation and eternal things. 
Beware of sitting in these pews and writing off what you're hearing as important for other people, but really of little consequence for someone like you. And warn your friends against such indifference as well. When your friends speak like Gallio, when they say to you, I'm sure Christianity is good for you, but I'm not really concerned about any of these things. Warn them that that attitude is fatal. Tell them that they're playing roulette with their souls, that if they leave the cosmic claims of Christ unsearched, they are being utterly and eternally foolish. After all, says Stuart, and I want to quote from him at length, if a man does appear in this world claiming to be God, I should either lock him up or I should listen pretty hard. Can a man make this much sense? He's talking about Jesus. Can a man be this noble? Can a man be this enlightened, this godly, this caring, this powerful, this majestic, and be completely deceived about who he actually is? I would pick up this book, he says, and read it if I was you. I'd read it pretty hard, and I'd read it pretty carefully. Because if what Jesus says is true, you're in trouble, and so am I. He goes on, after all, Jesus illuminates hell as no prophet of the Old Testament ever did. No one ever elucidated our great need to be reconciled to our maker as he did. And no one ever shed tears of compassion and pity and showed the mercy as he did when he stretched out his hands. This is the man who was bloodied and battered and bruised in order to reconcile sinners to God. This is the man who was not deflected from his course in spite of all the opposition that is arranged against him for your sake and mine. So when this man speaks, Stuart says, I should listen. I shouldn't write off his titles as mere names and words, and when his cause has stood for 2,000 years, he continues, in spite of the fact that he seemed to die alone and forsaken on a cross outside Jerusalem on a rubbish heap, when his cause has stood for 2,000 years, when his adherents number the millions, when the lives visibly changed by the force of his words number the millions, I had better stop and I had better listen. But Gallio didn't listen. Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. And Gallio therefore missed a great opportunity to be brought under the power of the gospel. Don't you do the same. And don't let your friends get away with that either if you love them. Share with them along the lines that I just shared with you from the words of Kenneth Stewart. Urge them that Jesus Christ is not just words and names, but that his name is infinitely worthy of their serious investigation. Tell them the meaning behind these words, these precious words and names. Reason with them, as Paul did in verse 4. Persuade them, as he did there in Corinth. Solemnly testify, verse 5, of all the reasons that you know that this Jesus is the Christ.